Welcome back to the Leadership Locker. So Tony Watley is the first of many guests I think I am going to be finding on Clubhouse. We are not going to get into Clubhouse. I could probably just make a podcast episode about that in itself. But I overheard him in one of the rooms on the app, and I was fascinated by his approach. Uh, he had his demeanor, he was collected, um, and he wasn't just being pretty self-fulfilling. And, and I could just very much tell he wasn't interested in hearing himself talk as much as he was helping. So as a business coach and an author and multi-seven-figure business owner, I felt it was imperative for me to have him on the show. He's also a podcaster, so I mean, that helps. So I'm like, this is a no-brainer, reached out, and I'm just thrilled to have him on. I think you're gonna detect much of what I did, and he's gonna provide a lot of value in terms of how he was able to turn a side hustle into multiple side hustles, each of them grossing well over a million dollars and allowing him to leave the life that he didn't want. Uh, there's a lot of good conversation in here about being in a profession that doesn't necessarily fulfill you and what you can do to change the trajectory of where your life is going and how you want it to be. Let's get into it. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the Leadership Locker. You got the intro, so you already know about the Side Hustle Millionaire here on the screen with me. And I'm going to give him an opportunity really quick to tell us a little bit about him, and then we're just going to get into straight knowledge and Q&A. Hey, Rich. My name is Tony Watley. I am a business coach, speaker, number one best-selling author, and a podcast host, imagine that, like you, of a show called 365 Driven. But my unique story is that I built side businesses while I worked a full-time engineering career in oil and gas. And with those side business, which were in my passion of automotive and racing, I was able to make millions of dollars and also sell those companies for millions of dollars, all while doing them in my spare time, less than an hour a day. And so I got really good at making money with minimal time. And now that's what I do is I teach people how to start, scale and sell their business. I love it. So let's get right into the essence of the side hustle culture. Do you believe that that side hustle comes from a place of not being fulfilled where you are or simply just the interest in determining whether you can start and scale a business? For me, entrepreneurship, before we even knew what that was, was just a means to get things that I wanted. So it started as a kid. I was the one that would go to the corner store, buy a box of blow pops or Jolly Ranchers, and I would put them in little Ziploc baggies, just like a crack dealer. And I would take them to school and sell them to my friends and I would double my you know, investment. So that was how I paid for skateboards and video games and bicycles. And I just didn't have any money. I grew up lower middle class, really in the worst neighborhood of the small town that we lived in, that my parents lived there just to where we'd have a good school system. But from that, it was all about, hey, if you want something, go figure out how to do it. So it was always a means to get something. And I'll tell you that for me, starting that business while I was working was for a creative outlet, first of all, because I was a young engineer, didn't have any authority, didn't get to practice any leadership, didn't really have much creative outlook because I was managing projects. And I said, you know, I, I got this engineering degree and I really wanted to use it for cars, but the car industry didn't pay nearly as what oil industry pays. So I was able to stay here in Houston, my hometown, and earn enough to be able to buy the cars that I would have been designing. So I was like, yeah, I think I'd rather be a consumer than somebody creating that. But I, it didn't scratch the itch. And the worst thing about a high performer, this is good for anybody else that they're managing people, or maybe you're middle management in corporate. If, 
if you got high performers, don't look at their age. Think about what their capabilities are and give them that opportunity to get the authority and leadership and give them things that challenge them. Because if you don't, they're going to start looking outwards to go build companies like I did. So I built that company just so I could be in charge of something, just so I could try to lead, just so I could, you know, do things that weren't really, I wasn't getting at the job site. And I didn't expect to make millions of dollars. That's not what the purpose of that business was. And I think you'll find a lot of successful people. We didn't intend to become millionaires. We just grew into that. You literally created the opportunities that were not in front of you. It seems like, and for lack of a better term, that you didn't have the patience to wait to get into a leadership position or to do some of these other things. Now, let me tell you this. If you're coming out of the Marine Corps or the Army, you have had the leadership experience and it could actually be a sharp drop off when you see the type of leaders that you might work for out here. Now, all that being said, so you started the businesses and you wanted to kind of determine, you know, whether you could do this. Now, you could have a side hustle alone, but I'm sure at some point you needed help. What were some of the leadership challenges you had as you started to say, oh, shit, this this business is actually doing something special? I would think that Honestly, that the first two businesses, I've started nine companies. Three of them did very well. So that's uh, the 30% batting average, just like the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame batters is 30%. So most people think that they got to hit a grand slam on their first at bat and maybe they crash and burn on the first thing. And they say, well, I guess this is not in it for me, right? And they give up and they either go back and find a job. But I've never been a quitter in anything in my life because of really sports and, and having a really strong dad. My dad was a U.S. Marine as well. He's a Vietnam vet. So I got to see someone that left the military to go work in construction and oil and gas. Yeah. So I was actually born on a Marine base in Iwakuni, Japan. So military brat that just kind of just did my own thing, right? And Here's the thing is that when you get out of corporate or you have the leadership backgrounds, and I've hired several vets, I have a lot of love for first responders and veterans and, and children's things. I always found that the military, especially with the oil and gas offshore construction that I used to manage, usually 100 to $500 million projects, I would hire the military, ex-military people, because one, they were used to following the procedure and the plan and the project. So it was really easy to create the processes and systems. And they, they really respected the chain of authority, right? That's what we get in the military. It's all about, you know, respect your authority. You may not like that person, but you have to respect the authority. And, we, and, and as a team, we're getting things done. And I found that when you work offshore, a lot of times you're gone a month at a time, right? And that's what we're used to. When you guys go on deployment, it's very similar. It's like you disappear for a month. Nobody knows where you're at. You're off the radar a lot of times. That's that's an oil and gas. We're floating on a boat in the middle of the ocean a lot of times, and nobody really knows what we're doing. And it's kind of funny because I would do that for 20 years, and some of my friends would see me, and I'd be in Paris and in London and in all these different places in the world because it was international. And they're like, "Dude, are you a spy? You know, are you a spy? Like, what's going on, man? You're like everywhere. Like, you know, your wife's at home, and you're everywhere. It's like that's that was my life for 20 years, right? So I had to build those businesses, Rich, to be able to understand that I couldn't run them in a physical location and I couldn't run these online businesses by being needing to be there with business hours, you know, air quotes, business hours. So I had to build businesses around my lifestyle, which honestly is the best way to do it. Even today, I still run online businesses, do not require my presence or my direct time, like hours. And that's the best way to think about that when you're understanding that. So leadership, dude, you just got to get out there and do things. You're never going to be a leader unless you want to be a leader. And I'll tell you, a lot of people want the title of being a leader. They, they want to get promoted into manager and they want to feel good around their friends and family. But titles do not give you leadership. Studying leaders 
historic leaders and what do they do wrong? What they did right? What are the things I can grasp from the examples they gave and adopt for myself? You start to build your own version of leadership. And for me, it's always been about servant leadership and being a part of the community rather than standing on a pedestal and pounding my chest and barking orders. I've never been that person. I, that was my dad. Definitely, you know, gunny sergeant Marine is like, that's him. He was barking orders. That's not me. I built massive communities. The first one I grew to 300,000 registered members. And then I took that same business model, applied it to trucks instead of cars. And I built another community of 280,000 registered members. So while all these people out there are enamored by followers and all this stuff nowadays, because that's the vanity metric of the decade, I built communities where I actually had their name, their address, their email, and led those. I'd rather take followers. No, I'd rather have the community over the follower account. Someone asked a question on Clubhouse, and I think you mentioned, you know, there's just a topic about followers, and, and it sounded like you, you could not not say anything. And, and you said, I was like, I got to talk to him right away. Can you just talk about the value of that? What is the difference between, you know, having a, a followers who are going to engage with you and who are fans of what you do and maybe why you do it versus registered people in a community that you've helped build? So first of all, followers and email lists are not a community, right? They could be part of a community, but they are not a community. And most people think of community as like, oh, I've got a lot of raving fans. That's not a community, okay? Because when you're a leader of a follower or an email list, there's only one way of communication. It's you to them. And it's just a direct line of from you to each and individual, all of them. So it's just these lines that go straight to them and they don't come back. So you're kind of just one way. The other thing is it's not really a community because it's really more of a pedestal play or ego play or I got a lot of follower count, but they're not your community, which is your followers are not interacting with each other. And a community is when the entire organization, the entire group of people communicate with each other, not just you. You're just part of the conversation. So as a big community builder, I learned this early on just based out of leverages and entrepreneurship mind. I, I thought, man, if I can get a lot of people here, I can get more advertisers. And then I could also start raising my advertising rates to advertise to them. And that's just the, the mind that how do I monetize this? And so I said, okay. We started the community, it's probably a thousand people, just like most people start with a community and it kind of grew and we started to see things and we could have access to the server so we could see the analytics behind or were people logging in or were they just lurking and enjoying the free content. And the funny thing is, is about 50% of the people would just come consume the content, but never, but never register rich. They would never register for an account. So I didn't have their information and I couldn't use that visitation number as a, a selling point to potential advertisers. So, well, wow, scratch my head. It's like, man, how do I get more people to register? Because I need that number. I need to show that when people log in and they see like registered numbers, you know, and like that's what I need. So how do I do that? So I started thinking about a win-win-win scenario. How do I do this without spending any money? And this, this still works on Instagram and Facebook. I've done it in my groups. So what you do is you have a few initial advertisers that you get in, maybe through your relationships, right? Low dollar, it could be $50 a month. Just have somebody there like, hey, I'm going to showcase you to my small audience and I'm going to talk about you. I'm going to pump you up. I'm going to send you referrals and, and really sell it and get maybe two or three of those type people. And you go, hey, when your community starts to grow, now you're giving, doing giveaways. So you contact that sponsor. How would you like to be the featured sponsor for this month? I'm going to talk about you. I'll interview you. I'll bring you on my show. I'll, whatever it takes, right? But all I need is a $250 gift certificate that they're going to spend with you when they win, right? And so you do that and say, hey, if you sign up for this thing, 
you're going to have the ability to win a $250 gift certificate to Rich Cardona's program. And now you're the featured sponsor. So you get the accolades, the attention. The winner gets the money to go spend. And I get the registration. See, I get a lot of registrations from that. So it's a giveaway that didn't cost me anything. It was a win-win-win scenario. And when you can think about that on a larger scale, we could be doing that with our podcast, all kinds of things. Hey, guys, I'm going to give away this thing. I'm going to be a sponsor of this. I haven't done it on my show, but I could, right? Maybe someone listening to this gets this idea, applies it to their business model, how to build a community. But my job was always to build those tight bonds and friendships between each and every individual member of the community because I knew that if they became lifelong friends or even got married because it's happened several times, that they're always going to come back to home base where they met and they're always going to tell their friends where they met and they're going to come hang out where they met. Just like a lot of people hang out on Facebook because it's where they met, right? It's like the hub. So all I did was really the same business model as Mark Zuckerberg on a smaller scale, although I sold my company before Facebook even came out. Wow. Let me ask you this. You, you've talked about the loneliness of entrepreneurship. And, and I can tell you after being in the Marine Corps and kind of losing your tribe, then going on to Amazon for a couple of years and being in a warehouse surrounded by hundreds of people at a time, this endeavor has been a little bit different. Uh, we've already kind of covered leadership challenges, which, you know, it, this is a totally different leadership challenge for me, but there is a kind of seclusiveness to entrepreneurship, although I'm still building relationships, just like I am like right this second, like I'm, I'm building a relationship with you. If people don't kind of get that, that's what's happening. However, you still have to be in your zone, in your element. Your business means more to you than anybody. How do you look at the the kind of loneliness aspect of it? How do you combat it? And, you know, what should people think when they're kind of starting to get a little bit of traction and they just want to be around people? Entrepreneurship, as you know, is a very lonely journey. Less than 1% of our population decides to take the risk to actually become an entrepreneur. And I get it. There's a lot of people out there that are self-employed and they think they're an entrepreneur or they're a business owner and they think they're an entrepreneur. And there's a distinction between all of those things. Entrepreneurs are willing to take a greater than normal risk on financial than a business owner who creates themselves a job, really it's a job replacement. And then you have the self-employed who maybe the multi-level marketers and the realtors and things like that, they're hustling, they're making money, they're self-employed. But the thing is, is they're supporting somebody else's brand, right? It's not their own brand. They have a lot less risk because they haven't had to invest the marketing and all these different things that are what make a business successful into that brand. And also they don't get to create the corporate policies and things like that of someone else's brand. So you're really just being a high paid mercenary type salesperson when you're representing someone else's brand. That's the fact, you know, whether you want to call yourself entrepreneur or not. Entrepreneurs go build something. They go build their own brand and they help serve other people. Maybe they're helping other people build their brand. It's all about taking on the most amount of risk. And here's the thing is most people are unwilling to take on any risk. So when you remove risk from something, you actually remove the opportunity from something, you know, but that, people don't realize that they think they want really easy. So they start to shy away from risk and they shy away from that financial investment. They shy away from failing and what people are going to say about their failure. And they essentially remove all the possibility of success from doing that. So you understand that there is no reward without risk. There is no success without failure. And you have to be willing to embrace failure. And the thing is that we fail every day, dude. We fail every day and we recover from it. But some people are so afraid of just failing. And it's the thing that 
that's the surface level question. Anyways, they're not afraid of failing. What are we afraid of, Rich? We're not afraid of failing. I, I think uh, sometimes we're afraid of success. That's another, that's definitely a fear. That's definitely a fear. What we're really worried about, Rich, we're worried about what other people are going to say about our failure. That's the truth. That's, it's, it, you're afraid of being humiliated. You're afraid of being embarrassed. You're afraid of potential critics, naysayers, haters, whatever you want to label them. It's not afraid of failure. You go to the gym, the last set, you're doing reps, you fail. You eat the wrong meal that day, you fail. You sleep in a little longer, you fail. You don't do your follow-ups and call your friends, you fail. But you don't dwell on those things. You just go, oh, well, I'll, I'll continue to improve. That's just like entrepreneurship. And you have to be willing to fail. Don't look to fail, but you have to be willing to fail and understand that's a process. And when you start to realize that, again, the baseball analogy, 30% at bat for the Hall of Fame batters, the best batters in history only batted 30%, but they're Hall of Famers. So you mentioned the financial aspect of it, which definitely just not really heard it put that way before in terms of removing risk is removing opportunity. And, and I'm certainly not risk averse, but I'm going to be completely honest right here on my own podcast and tell you something that I'm sure you coach on regularly. And that is, I am not obsessed with the money. I did not have financial goals 20 months ago when I started this company. We made less than $100,000 in our first pretty much year. And then we quadrupled almost, uh, you know, did 5x of that the last year. So I said this year, I'm going to I'm going to make a financial goal, I need something to just kind of be the anchor. So right over there, I have a board that's like, okay, this is how I'm going to get to a million this year. But Tony, I don't like to talk about money. I don't like to sell. And I'm not in it for the money. But I do understand what that could do for me and what it could do for my family. So how do you help people balance that aspect? And should money be a goal? I would say that, no, when I started my first company, this is how small, I want to I put it into context because I think it's important for under people to understand that I didn't have big dreams. They occurred, but I didn't have those, right? I grew up lower middle class, like I said. And for me, starting that business was just to build a creative outlet. So I built this website that, you know, hey, if I could bring my car friends and we can hang out online and, you know, it'd be a cool place to hang out. And if I make an extra $500 a month, that will pay for my Trans Am, which I bought when I graduated college. I bought myself a Trans Am. That was the car note. So I said, hey, if I could build this one thing in the car space and it pays for the car that I have, it's like a free car, right? This is the logic I had, right? I had, I had a big boy job, Ridge. I had an engineering degree and I was making $45,000 entry level salary back then. So I thought it was like, you know, I'm, I'm super awesome. I'm an engineer, guys. I'm super smart. And I never really thought about that company making millions of dollars. It, eventually, it was making me $400,000 a year profit from a side business. And we sold that company for $2.3 million cash. And I had zero debt in the business. It was an 88% profit margin business model. And so when I think about that now, it's like, I just did the things right. All I did was, all I, I didn't understand valuation. Like the first time they started talking about buying my company, I didn't know what that meant. And I actually had a lower number in my mind than their first offer. And I was like, oh, crap. That's like a real number. Like, I need to go talk to a lawyer that does M&A, you know, mergers and acquisitions and get their advice. And, of course, the lawyer's like, well, their first offer is always low. Like, bump that up. Let's go. We bumped it up. And then they said, okay. So that's how it all worked. But I didn't know all this stuff. But the thing is, is that I did everything right managing that business just from reading books and understanding it, but not thinking about selling it. I didn't think about that. It wasn't on the market. 
And what happened is I built a recurring revenue business model from the advertisers. Sometimes they would pay prepay me a year in advance to get a little discount. Sometimes they would pay me monthly, right? And then I had live events that attached and I had this brand name that was the top of the market. I mean, we built the number one General Motors performance website on the internet. So I had advertisers like Cadillac and Chevrolet and Pontiac, they were all advertising on my website. And so I was able to use that backlog of work and the contracts that were coming in and the history of them repeating their, their buy cycles that I was able to leverage all that into the valuation of the company. And then also had the database of the users, which is a lot of value. Uh, like nowadays we hear like data is like currency, data is like currency. And that's what Facebook is. They sell your data. That's currency. Nobody was talking like that in you know, 2007. So when I sold the company that I just thought it was like a cool email list. I didn't even know the potential that it was tapped in that email list. I didn't even utilize that email list to make money, dude. There's so much gold <laughs> just in that. 300,000 emails that are targeted customers that are specific that like that vehicle. Like I, I didn't even understand that stuff. I, I left so much on the table. I could have got the valuation of that company probably to 10 million if I knew what I knew now. So I'm putting it in perspective that don't think that I need to be a millionaire. I need to make a money. Like a million is not a lot of money nowadays. Like houses and we got SUVs that cost a hundred thousand dollars nowadays. Like it's not a lot of money. That same million dollar thing has been a goal since the 1960s. Also the dollar deflated down and it, and it sounds cool, but it's, it's when you get there, it's, it's not what you think it is. It's not like you're going to get private jets popping bottles and all that. You need like at least 10 million liquid to get to that lifestyle to give you an idea. So when you think about that, it's like, dude, it's like, business don't have to think big. Okay. And the money is not the objective. It's about serving others. That's what it comes down to is like, how can I impact or serve or help other people with their challenge or their problem? And, and, and when people hear the challenge or the problem part, they think negative, those are negative words by nature. Like it's a challenge. It's a problem. That's just a analogy type word that you got to realize, like, what are the things that you're trying to solve for them? So for example, if someone is bored, maybe they're, that's their problem is they're bored. And maybe the solution is you, you become a comedian and you make them laugh. So their problem is just lack of laughter or happiness. So, you, so it's not a bad thing all the time. So th think about what are the things that you solve or what are the things that annoy the crap out of you on a daily basis that are going through your life? Like maybe a consumer good or a service. Like, I wish they could do this better. I wish they would fix that. Or I wish this was a little faster. Or why can't they make this cheaper? Like whatever the things that annoy you, take notes. And maybe that's the thing that disrupts that industry, that product line, or just one aspect of the value chain. And you go, man, if I could just fix this one aspect, because if you could change something 1%, you have a viable business model. You don't have to be an inventor. Everybody thinks you got to be an inventor, don't they? Like, oh, I got to invent, I need to be Elon Musk and make rockets that land on a barge <laughs> in the middle. Like, no, dude, 99% of the businesses out there, the things, the brands that you know, were just a little bit different version of something that already existed. So don't overthink the idea, just improve the idea. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for a quick break. Did you know my COO, Eliza Delgado, spent over a decade in publishing? She knows all the ins and outs of writing a book, getting it edited, having it published, finding the right people to help you promote it. And more than half of our clients have written a book, are writing a book, or want to write a book, which leads me to our next and newest offering, which is a 16-week launch plan in which Eliza and her team will help you prepare for that launch and then be with you post-launch to market the book appropriately. And obviously our video services would be incorporated into that. 
All that to say that this episode is sponsored by Rich Cardona Media, and I had to let you know that that is something that you can share with your friends or your family or anyone you know who's an aspiring author so we could get them on the right track. We could do a console or we can go all in. You let us know. Let's get back to the episode. One of your thought pillars is that business doesn't have to be complicated, that it's actually very simple. You're going to laugh, but I didn't know who Andy Frisella was until just a few weeks ago when, uh, you know, I do some work with Jocko Willink and some of that crew and they're like, oh, you got to, you got to follow this guy. I'm like, okay. So I started listening and it's funny. I'm listening. I'm in 2015 in the podcast. I'm, I'm not skipping ahead to 2020. I'm listening in 2015. And it's one of the same things that you're saying is that it's, it's simple. And I actually believe you spoke at, you're, are you part of the uh, Red Taste Syndicate? Yes. Yeah, so I saw you on there. So, so if, if it's so simple, Tony. If it's so simple, why do we fuck it up all the time? Why do we go down the rabbit holes? Why do we, why do I try and go, I'll do marketing, I'll do finance, I'll do this, I'll do the ads, I'll do the copy. Why do we, why is it so simple and why do we screw up so much then? I think it's the shiny object syndrome. I think it's never been easier than today to start a business. Never been easier. We have all these apps. We've got information that's largely free that you can learn from. We've got people like me and like yourself sharing information and encouraging people. We've got communities. We've got all these things that I didn't have in 1999 when I started my first online business. I had to read books and Forbes magazine and entrepreneur and just kind of cobble things together and get punched in the face a lot of times and fall on my face and lose money and do all these things to get to where I was. But nowadays, it's really easy. But the thing is, is now, now there's a saturation and noise. There's a whole lot of noise just coming at you. It's like literally drinking out of a fire hose and you go... You know, like, like you go to 10X, we talked, you mentioned Grant and things like that. Like you go to 10X conference and you got Russell Brunson on the stage and he's selling click funnels and nobody knows what the hell a funnel is, but he's convincing you that you need one because he's like, he, he uses the whole visuals like, oh, you're down here and you want to get up here and, and I've got the <laughs> magic solution. It's this box right in the middle. It's called the click funnels and you buy this and it's one click funnel way. You're going to be a millionaire. And then everybody in the state and like 30,000 people nodding their head. I don't know what the fuck a funnel is, but I need that funnel because that's because I am down there and I want to be up there. So that that's noise. That's noise. We had I mean, he sold three million dollars worth of click funnels from the stage at that event. Three million dollars in sales just from that event. You can't tell me 30,000 people in that stadium in Miami were ready to create a funnel and a landing page. They didn't have a product, they didn't have a service. He builds an awesome tool. But unless you know how to use that tool, it doesn't matter. You have nothing to sell. You just bought a very expensive software package that's going to lead you to nothing. So you got to be careful out there and quit thinking you need something like the shiniest. I got to use this app. I got to do this. Like, and, and what happens, it creates overwhelm. You get all these things flying at you and you think because everybody got telling you what you need and you come ask Tony and I'm telling you like, you should do this, this, this. You go ask Andy Frizzella. He's like, you should do this, this, and this. And you ask Rich, and you, oh, you start thinking, I just needed all these. Uh, they're successful. I got to have all these things. Like it's bullshit. Figure out one avenue. And I would say that pick one coach, one coach. Learn from them, see what you can apply from that one coach, their process, things they've proven. And when you graduate from that coach, you should move on and maybe find the next level coach. And you should always be investing in yourself to, to learn. If, if you don't have money, you better have time, right? Because money makes things go a lot faster. If you wanted to be on the stage of RT Syndicate with Ed Milet and Andy Frizzell, like I have, 
I invested $100,000 to get access to those guys. So I was on their radar because if I knew I got on the stage with 1,500 people in the audience that fit my ideal customer base, then I'm going to leverage and springboard into the next level. And that's what I did, right? So you have to be willing to invest and get into the proximity and the circles of the people that you want to be around that are going to help you get the things that you want. And most people resist that. They think like, oh, I don't want to spend the money. It's expensive. It's like, no, you, you can't afford not to spend that money because if you want to waste another year of your life, two years of your life, three years of your life, or just write a check for $30,000 and suck it up by selling some stuff off, living a little bit lower than on your means, you're going to make a hundred grand at the end of the year. Like most people don't understand that. You know, we'll go spend $50,000 on a university degree from professors who have never achieved success who are mediocre at best middle managers of America trying to teach leaders of tomorrow who have never led a damn thing in their life. But we're okay getting that degree at $50,000. And we're not okay learning from people who actually are at the top of their game that charge you, you know, 10,000 a year or 100,000 or whatever it is, whatever your price range is. So dude, it's, it's a game. So we get distracted, dude. It's too much shit. It's too much shit. So keep it simple, guys. Keep it simple. Oh my God. I got to say something. I mean, there's just nuggets galore there. And and here's here's one thing I'm going to share with everyone. I'm, I'm ridiculously transparent. Everything he said are things that I've done. I cannot tell you how many unfinished fucking courses I have because I'm like, I got to do this, this, and this. But I will say, I will backtrack to, to, you know, making that goal. It's still not about the money for me, but it is about accessibility. And you're absolutely right about that. You know how many times I've been able to fly out to, you know, do a podcast with someone just because I want to make sure I'm in front of them. And I'm telling you, I will be in Houston and we're going to do something or do a follow up at some point. But that's money absolutely helps you kind of fast forward a relationship in a way. And you're not paying for someone to like you. But if you're worth the shit, if you have good principles, if you have integrity and a viable business, then people will take notice. And if you do that without expectation, then it's really going to unfold. Now, here's my next question. Picking a coach, if you are a, a, a startup entrepreneur, or whatever it may be, and, and, and I, I know this from some of my clients, if it's your last $10,000 or your last $5,000, you are just kind of thinking, there, there better be ROI because, and, and you don't want that person. <laughs> you want someone who could yeah, afford you yeah. five times. But how can someone pick a coach and have the right expectations in that regard for the quote unquote ROI? And, and you know, how should they select? You got to think of your coach as your mentor. It needs to be somebody you respect. It needs to be somebody that you align with on your core values. Most people don't have core values. I don't understand what that means. And you also need to understand that it needs to be somebody that maybe intimidates you a little bit because you don't want to let them down, right? If, they're, if they act like they're your best friend, like, are you really going to hold yourself accountable to your best friend? Most people let their best friends off and we're not brutally honest. Like I'm, I'm brutally honest, by the way, I'm sure you are with your best friends because that's who we are, but most people sugarcoat and they just want to pamper you and it's okay. And you can get it next time. Like, no, dude, that's not how I treat my friends. I, I give them the respect and dignity by just being blunt and honest and respectful. Right. So Find somebody like that. But here's the other thing. You also want to make sure they've achieved things that you want to achieve in their past, have a historical evidence of that. If you can't Google them and they're not, they haven't done anything, like be, be wary of that. And I'll tell you that 
there's even some New York Times bestsellers out there. You know, there are high accolades. That's the, the number one. I'm, not, I'm an Amazon number one bestseller. But New York Times, I mean, it's very political. It's not even based on sales. It's based on editors there. <laughs> Yeah. The editors go, hey, these are my friends, or they get $100,000 in their bank account, and they go, hey, this is, a, this is a bestseller. It's very political. And I've got several people that are friends of mine that are on that list, and I'll tell you, yeah, it's, it's all who you know. And so you'll find these people that are promoted by that. You know, New York Times bestseller, oh, it's a great, great book. And, and you read it, and you go, hey, it's a pretty good book. And I'm going to challenge you here, because read those books, because some of them are really good, even though the person didn't accomplish shit in their life before that book came out. But what you do is you go fire up the old Google machine. It's real easy. It's free. It's on your phone. You carry it every day and Google them and then see how many pages deep they go and see what they've accomplished before that book was launched. You can find the book launch date and you'll find a lot of times they come up empty because people didn't achieve shit. You might even find like their resume from the job they worked at before they, while they were writing the book and you're like, wait a minute, this person is saying they're going to be a leader and all this. And they didn't do shit before that. So be careful, do your due diligence. And then now you're going to look at, are they achieving on a level today, right? Because there's a lot of people that were, you know, successful 20 years ago, but are they still putting themselves out there and showing that they're living what they believe today? And so are they relevant now, right? That's another question. The other one is, what is their mannerisms or how are they coaching? Is it just a, is it just a bullshit where you sign up and then you get a bunch of online courses and you don't get any interaction? You have to ask those questions, right? Because some people need interactions. Some people are okay with online courses, but sometimes the the offerings aren't really that clear. So I I think there's a lot of coaching uh, that takes place where I've seen at least, where it kind of ends up being like a Zoom call. They're kind of there, but there's like a lot of weird peer-to-peer coaching. And I'm like, fuck that. Like, that's not what I want. I want to talk to Tony. I want Tony to be intimately familiar with my business. So he could be like, Rich, another month like that, you're going to have to reconsider everything. You know, that that's what I want. So like, how important is accessibility, you know, on that one-on-one? And how, how big are you on those one-on-one relationships with, with the people that you serve? I've got different coaching programs myself. I've got masterminds of six to eight people groups, and I've got one-on-one coaching, and I've got the large group with thousands of members, like a dollar a day type program. And so I know that dynamic and it backfills all the needs for the clients I have because I'm trying to get them through that pipeline. I want everyone to be able to afford my one-on-one eventually, right? And my rates just keep increasing based on demand and supply versus demand drives your, your, your pricing. So to me, it's access is what you pay for. Access is the highest value, right? So the lower ticket things tend to be presence, but not access, High ticket, my one-on-one clients, they they have my phone number. They can reach out to me anytime if they need a hard decision or they need to have a real quick strategy ch- you know, chat, something that they have access. Let me give you an idea of what it takes to be an Ed Milet and Andy Frizzella's access. You're spending $100,000 to be in their high-level mastermind. There's 50, 60 people in there, but we don't have their phone numbers. So we're just hanging out with their house. You know, Every quarter, we're, we're taking a trip. And we're hanging out in their house and we're getting a lot of FaceTime and three-day weekend. And then that's it. Then it goes back to the videos and there's no one-on-one anymore. See, so you go spend $100,000 and not have somebody's phone number. That's a different level of investment. See, so understand that there's different. I mean, Tony Robbins, if you want to go work with Tony Robbins, just to be in his little entourage, it's probably about $200,000 nowadays to be in his top 10, to fly on his jet with him. And that's the only FaceTime you get is his events. And, and maybe a quarterly retreat. You're not calling Tony Robbins and, hey, Tony, 
it's Tony. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. what, what can I do here, man? Like, what are like, you're not going to have that access. So like information should almost be free because you should be giving out the free information and understanding that very small percentage of people are going to take action. I could drop a whole lot of bombs to your listeners right now. And 10% of the people actually could take some action. 90% nod your head. That's a great idea. And you won't do shit with it. And a year from now, you're going to be in the exact same situation you are today. So you better go take action. But if you want access, the value jumps tremendously. I agree. And when it comes to taking action on these items, on these objectives, on, on this guidance that someone like you or any other coach would give, you still have a lot of plates spinning as a young entrepreneur. Um, and it's very easy in my mind to lose focus. And I can tell you from personal experience, there's been plenty of times where I, I had a coach once and it's definitely coming up time to have another, but I had a coach and I would, I would literally repel some of the things he said, but I'm like, oh, but this is more important. And I found myself not listening to someone I was paying to do these things. But when it comes to all the kind of competing priorities, is there anything that you would say to startup entrepreneurs that generally can wait or that they don't need to try and fast forward, that there's some things that are just better slowly, incrementally inching your way up the mountain? Yeah, I think a lot of people spend too much time initially on things that don't make any money. They go build a web page, they build webinars, they create their lead magnets. They do a whole lot of activities that feel good because it's like checking the box. You're an entrepreneur, go check your boxes. And you look back, you go, oh, I'm super awesome. I did all these things. And then you go look at their PayPal or Stripe account. It says zero, zero, like you're not making any money. Like, why are you doing all this stuff? So you can actually make quite a bit of money just building your, your, your words, just getting your message out there. And all you really need nowadays is an email and a PayPal account or a Stripe account, like just a way to get paid. PayPal, if you don't have one, it's like a bank account online. It uses your email address as the bank account number. It's really simple. You can actually leave the money in there just like a bank account. So you don't even need a bank account at that point. Like when you're starting your business, you don't need to go create an LLC. You don't need all that stuff. You don't get all fancy. If you want to feel like a big boy and cater to ego, yeah, go do that stuff. And, and my clients, I force them to go do that because I want them to build big shit over a small amount of time. So those are just things that we need to do, but it's not necessary initially. So I think about what are the money-making activities? Those are the things you should be working on. And what is it that's going to create some sort of income? Because when you start to do that, the confidence you get, especially with an online business, when you make money, when you sleep or when you're on vacation, right now I'm making money talking to you. And I'm not anywhere that I need to be pulling levers or doing this. It's it's going on in the background. When I wake up and, hey, oh, cool, I made $2,000 last night. That was a pretty good nap, right? That's the kind of mindset you got to have. And it's possible. So back to what you're talking about, keep it simple. Focus on things that make you money. Because when you start to do that, it gives you a little bit more encouragement and also gives you some breathing space. Because if you start to make enough to pay your bills, you're going to have a lot less anxiety. You're going to have a lot less fear. And you're also going to come off a lot less desperate because we can smell desperation in the air. We've seen those people, they'll, they'll throw out an offer. Oh, you know, for $9.97, we do this. And I need a minimum enrollment of 10 people. And it's going to be awesome. I'm going to change your life. And then three days later, okay, guys, it's uh, it's $4.97. And, uh, you know, because because there nobody's enrolling, right? We can smell the desperation like this, guys. And then a month later, they're like, oh, well, last month I was teaching you this, but I, I'm actually a, a speaker coach now. I'm going to go teach you this now. And they're, they're, 
they're jockeying around, their message is all unclear, they don't know what they're doing, and everybody knows it, it looked like a clown. So the thing about it is like, what is it that you really want to do? What is it that you really want to be the authority in? Even if there's a dozen other authorities in there, you can still be an authority in it too. There could be a million authorities in any subject. You don't have to be the top one. You could grow, become the top one. But what is it that you want to be an authority in, right? And don't be that person that has like 15 things on their bio or their their website of what they do because then you lose message. You got to be focused at, you know, we have this bullshit fallacy that people talk about. All millionaires have seven streams of income. You've heard it, haven't you, Rich? Like, well, this, like you think about that. And people don't understand the context of that. So let me explain that for the next time you hear that. And you can be like, shut the fuck up. All millionaires do have seven streams of income, but here's the context. They became a millionaire in one thing before they started developing other streams of income. So go be good at one thing. And then it's going to give you the capital and the freedom and the time to go invest in the next thing. And then you have two streams of income. And then that grows and it starts to cash flow. And you go, okay. Let me add a third one. So they didn't just go build seven streams. And I see so many people, especially on Clubhouse and Instagram, like I do nails and I sell tires and I'm a realtor and I'm also a business coach. Like, holy shit, you're not making any money. Why would I hire you? Like I can tell right away, you don't know what you're doing. If it's not even in the same vertical, which means in the same industry, it just tells me right away, you're just fishing in different ponds and you're trying to find one big fish to pop out. It's never going to happen for you. So we hire specialists. We don't hire generalists. Think about that when you're sick. If you just have a normal cold, yeah, you go to the general practitioner, you go to the family doctor because he kind of gives you the prescription and you go on your way. But if you have an eye issue, you go to an eye specialist. If you have cancer, you go to a cancer specialist. You don't, you don't go to the general practitioner. So humans with a challenge or a problem, not always the bad thing. Remember, problem and challenges are not always bad things. What is it that they need to solve that's the hurdle in their life right now. And what do we do? Just think about yourself. If you have a very specific problem, maybe you're afraid of public speaking. Well, I need to go hire a speaking coach. I look for a specialist. I'm not going to go hire a business coach that also speaks, right? I'm going to hire a speaking coach. So be that person to be that authority. And here's the thing. If you can ride that out about a year, invest a year in building that authority and go all in every single day creating content, once you become the authority of that, it's really easy to add in more verticals later. So you have to be focused to get the traction, to get the money coming in. And then you go, you know what? I'm a, I'm a speaker coach, but I'm also teaching people how to create videos because it's the same skill set and it just translates to videos. And then that grows and you go, okay, I'm, I'm going to teach people how to be podcast hosts because I'm a speaker coach and I teach people how to do videos. But now I've got this amazing podcast. I'm teaching people how to do that. See, it's all in the same vertical. It's using your voice. So when you think about that kind of stuff, like be good at one thing, guys. I love it. Tony, we'll wrap, but not before you tell us about 365driven.com and tell us a little bit about your show. Yeah, my show is based around entrepreneurship, but we talk about wealth, health, mindset, and relationships. I deem those as the four cornerstones of success and also you know, happiness. And you got to have a balance. We talk about fitness and things like that and mindset. And I don't believe that success is a financial number. I think that success is a well-rounded, just being the best version of yourself. I personally would never hire a, a success or a business coach that was physically unfit because it shows me that they have a weakness in their life that's 
arguably the most important aspect of our lives is our health. I'm so with you there. So, <laughs> dude, it, it's it's amazing how many people that don't realize that we do get judged by the, the cover. You know, books do get judged by the cover, regardless of what people tell you. It's all bullshit. Like political correctness doesn't care in the eyes of, of your consumer, right? So when you understand that, you need to be committed and have discipline in all regards if you want to teach people to have discipline and success in all regards. This is kind of how it goes. Like I would never go hire a personal trainer that was severely obese. It just doesn't make any sense to me, right? So that's the kind of thing. We, we talk about everything on that show, but also I have an entrepreneurship community called 365 Driven Society, and it's a supportive group, and it's based on the same core values and the leadership fundamentals. I grew those other ones to hundreds of thousands of members. So my goal is to grow that 365 Driven Society to millions of members because I'm ready to do that. And how, that's how I'm going to impact the world. I'm going to be a present and humble servant within a community of people who need that encouragement, need that accountability, need that mentorship, need the education. And that's how I'm going to help change the world. If you're listening to this, you did not hear him say, I'm going to take 365 Driven until I'm in the billions or anything like that. He said to be a present and humble servant. And it's not it's not hard for me to get miniature red flags when I'm having a guest on the podcast to determine, you know, the validity of what they're actually saying. I've certainly had guests. I've literally got pitched on my own freaking show by some of the guests I've had, and that is not this experience whatsoever. Um, so, Tony, I think uh, this has been fantastic, but I absolutely want people to know where to find you. Uh, how could people get in touch with you and and where where do you want them to find you? Man, my website is 365driven.com. So 365driven.com. And from there, you'll find my links to Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. Those are the platforms I've been primarily on until Clubhouse came in and became our addiction. But there's no way to find us on Clubhouse, but it's at 365driven. I'm pretty consistent across my branding. Well, I will definitely see you there. That's a completely different podcast, but Clubhouse is something that uh, you absolutely want to pay attention to if you're an entrepreneur. And uh, that is where I was listening to a voice that had an immediate impact on me. And I wanted to reach out. And that was Tony, who has a large presence there and is doing a lot of good things and doing exactly what he says he wants to do, which is to serve. So Tony, thank you so much for being on the show. And we'll see everyone next time. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to that episode with Tony. The best part of that episode is actually the fact that him and I stayed on talking for another 20 minutes afterwards. I literally felt like we were pressed for time, but we were like vibing. So it was great. I got to talk a lot about business, a lot about how we could support each other. And he did something remarkable. I asked if he knew any guests that would be great. And what I noticed about last season was that we didn't have a lot of women on and it wasn't a lack of me asking. It was just, um, I just wasn't getting responses or I don't know what took place. So it kind of made me feel like it was just lopsided. Now, I usually wouldn't want to go correct something like that, but it, it, it just kind of stuck out to me. And, I, and I'm and i like, there's too many badass women out there. So I asked him if he knew any. And because he has a podcast and, and just a virtual Rolodex, that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, we looked at some people and he made introductions immediately. I mean, we were done with the episode and then I saw three to four different introductions to women right away. And that is the type of caliber guest I, I want to continue to have. This individual is of service. So please take time to check him out. Uh, these are one of those great people that we should all know and could learn from. And that's why he has resources like 365driven.com. So 
check him out. And as always, you know the deal. If you enjoyed this, please rate it, review it. It's so, so important to get this out. And um, actually, we've been like doubling up on our numbers, uh, our downloads the last couple months. And I'm really, really excited about the direction this podcast is going. And I cannot thank you enough for your support. See you later.